I take Quaaludes 10 to 15 times a day for my back pain, Adderall to stay focused. Xanax to take the edge off, pot to mellow me out, cocaine to wake me back up again, and morphine well. Because it's awesome. Morning, make them. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris, and I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is uh, John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and hosted voiceover guy down here in San Diego, California, and uh, very excited to be walking back into the world of Martin Scorsese with this three-hour opus um, about one of the most difficult guys to enjoy while you're watching this movie. One of the most difficult protagonists I've ever seen in a Scorsese film. It really is. I went through a range of emotions watching this thing. <laughs> this is, of course, The Wolf of Wall Street, and it is our first film from 2013. Each year we put out our survey to say what movie from the 10 years ago should be the first one that we do. And there were all sorts of choices that came up. Things like Her, Man of Steel, Gravity, Snowpiercer, Inside Llewellyn Davis, 12 Years a Slave, which won the Oscar, Frozen, Dallas Buyers Club. And out of all of these, it wasn't even close. Yeah. Wolf of Wall Street got 32% of the vote. The next closest one was her with 11%. Yeah. So overwhelmingly, uh, our cinephiles wanted us to tackle Wolf of Wall Street. And I could see why. It is a lot of a movie. Yeah, it is. Um, I remember when this one came out. I remember all the drama around it because a lot of people were upset that this was possibly glorifying a guy who had taken money from a lot of hardworking families and hardworking people. And that Hollywood was going to turn him into a hero. Um, and there was a lot of behind-the-scenes drama, like, was Scorsese going to do it, not going to do it? How long would it happen? Would it not happen? And then after the film was made, there was even more drama about how the film was made that mirrored what we saw in the film, which is really funny. So a very interesting film in uh, Scorsese's resume and one that I thoroughly enjoy revisiting, um, but for different reasons each time. And I love that about the movie. Uh, it's a fascinating gift of a film from Scorsese. Do you remember how you first came to it? Yeah, I think just, you know, um, here in, in or there in L.A., rather, um, seeing it with probably Shannon and, and Mikey and some other people uh, at some place, uh, if I remember correctly, at one of the theaters there and just being blown away at the uh, how quickly the three hours went. And, you know, Scorsese has an ability for that because The Irishman, I rewatched it again the other day off of Netflix it is something I can absolutely have on in the background while I'm working on stuff, and it never loses its attraction for me. And Scorsese just has an ability to keep my attention for three hours and entertain me for three hours. And I just remember walking out going, wow, that was an excellent, excellent movie. I mean, he's, he's a master filmmaker, and there's the fact that The Irishman in his upcoming movie looks amazing. It was a flower moon, yeah. I mean, like, this is a guy who's been making great films for 50 years. You know, yeah, and, and edgy films like that's the amazing thing to me is because most filmmakers, even if they're edgy in their youth, they tend to people tend to mellow when they get older. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll tell you something interesting. I was going to say say this later, but mm. Martin Scorsese credits Leo Leonardo DiCaprio for this to some degree. He thinks that it revitalized not not that it revitalized his career, but it revitalized his passion. Oh, you know, yeah. working with Leo, like he uh, it sounds like he was feeling a little burnt out and he found this kindred spirit yep. who wanted to push the envelope with him and it got him 
brought him back to life, you know? Well, I think he's always been that director, hasn't he? I mean, from De Niro on, it, it, it was De Niro to DiCaprio. That was the passing off of the torch there. And um, he's a guy who was inspired by the actors he works with, right? A lot of directors, you and I both know this, some direct, not a lot, some directors see actors as movable props or vehicles for their grandiosity or to support their talent as a director. Um, but it seems like Scorsese is one of those directors that gets inspired by the actors that he works with and yeah. is driven to create great films surrounding the actors that he works with. And he has to be inspired by those actors in order to deliver the best of what he can do as a director. And I would argue that it's a rare Scorsese film that is damn good um, that doesn't star DiCaprio or uh, De Niro. I totally agree with that. Um, this movie came out in 2013. My son was born in 2011. This was definitely at the time I was not going out to movies. Oh, So I watched this movie sitting by myself in this office right here, probably after 11 o'clock at night over two or three nights. That is how I watched this movie. Wow. Um, uh, I'll, I have a little bit of pre-production. Obviously, this is based on the book, The Wolf of Wall Street, based on a true story about Jordan Belfort. Mm-hmm. And I will say this right now. Okay. The last Leonardo DiCaprio movie we did was the first 2012 movie, which was Django Unchained. Oh, yeah. Right. A movie where he played a totally despicable character <laughs> who I hated. And I'm not in any way comparing, you know, what happens in this film to the atrocity of slavery or torture and rape of people. I'm not. Although there's some stuff in here. I hate this character Basically as much. I hate Jordan Belfort. Jordan yeah. Belfort. Yeah, yeah. I He is a despicable human. He's a scumbag. Yeah. And yet this movie is enjoyable. Yes. It, yeah. it, and so it is a weird thing, but it, but you know, they, they had a Leonardo DiCaprio read the book, mm -hmm. really, really wanted to do it, goes to Warner brothers. They have a bidding war to get it. And Belfort gets paid a million bucks for the rights to his book. Yeah. It just, that bugs me because I hate the guy so much, you know? And Leonardo DiCaprio, it's his idea to have Martin Scorsese do it. And they bring him in. And basically, Marty, I'm going to call him Marty, sure. says <laughs> says that he, if he's going to do this movie, he needs total artistic freedom. Because they're either going to go for it or they're not going to go for it. Right. And Warner Brothers is a little iffy about that. Because <laughs> there's this movie has a lot of stuff in it. And right as they're negotiating this is when the financial collapse happens, mm, right? Which is which 2008, which um, in my mind makes the movie way more relevant. Mm -hmm. But in Warner Brothers' mind, it got them way more scared because suddenly they didn't know their financial situation. They cut the budget down. They 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 push back against Scorsese for the you know giving him free reign, and Marty walks off the picture. Yeah. To um, ironically go and direct. Shutter Island with DiCaprio as the star. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so Warner Brothers offers the movie to Ridley Scott. Yeah. Can you imagine? That's not a bad step. Next step, not step down or step up, but a lateral step. Totally. To move over to Ridley Scott. I think it would have been just as excellent of a movie, but in a different way, you know, a much more different way. To me, Ridley Scott, it's always which version of Ridley Scott do you get? Yeah, you know, exactly. Um, if it's the good version, I think so. But it, it, what it isn't, Ridley Scott will push a bunch of envelopes, but yeah. he won't push these envelopes. You know what I mean? Like oh, I've never seen point. him do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. And and then Warner Brothers just drops it completely. They just go, we we don't want to be in this kind of business. Leo goes to raise the money independently, 
And he knows that independently he can't afford to make the movie that Martin Scorsese wants to make. But in his brain, he keeps going back to Scorsese. And finally, they raise the money from Red Granite, which is, I think, what you were alluding to in terms of the financing of the film. And they do give him free reign to make the movie. Terry Winters is brought in as the screenwriter. Structurally, this movie. So I listened to the book. Yeah, I did not enjoy it that much it but it is very much follows what's in the movie but structurally the book is all over the place and figuring out how to condense it's a long book Mm -hmm. and figuring out how to condense it down to this movie and make the structure work that's some advanced screenwriting that terry winters did yeah and that's why you get someone like terrence winter who scorsese had worked with on boardwalk empire uh because he was a producer on that show and terrence was the writer on that show i think he was a creator and writer on that show and so plus and also terrence i think on the sopranos as well so there was connections there that worked for them to, to kind of make this work as a story. And maybe this might've been what Scorsese meant by artistic freedom. I want to bring on the person I know can find a way to turn all of this into a movie with a, with an interesting narrative that people will want to watch uh, and will inspire me as a director to direct some, some of my best work. Um, absolutely. Uh, one of the big battles was whether or not they're going to shoot on film. And of course, of course, as he wanted to, and they did all sorts of digital tests. And finally they did shoot it on film, except for anything that was low light or that they had to do uh, visual effects shots on that was all shot digitally. And this movie contains over 400 VFX shots. I mean, that's a lot of effects in this kind of a film. Yeah. And the other part of this to think about for this movie too, is that Scorsese, as you just said, Steve earlier, like, the ability to walk the line between a likable character or an interesting character, I guess I would say, and an interesting movie is not easy. A lot of his protagonists are not good people because most of because a lot of the De Niro ones are gangster stuff, right? I mean, as yeah. much as you may enjoy how cool Ray Liotta is in Goodfellas, he's a bad guy. Pushy is a bad guy. De Niro is a bad guy. And so how do I make the film interesting without glorifying these guys and showing the underbelly of their life, but still make the film interesting so that people will want to get to know these people, want to uh, see their journeys and attach to these characters. So it's, it's an interesting line to walk. Certainly Coppola walked that with Michael Corleone in The Godfather. A lot of heroic moments, but all in service to eventually – be the kind of person that would kill his brother and, yeah. um, you know, do nefarious, lie to his wife consistently. And of course in three end up inadvertently costing the life of his daughter. So it's just, there's so much here that, uh, there's not a lot to like about these people yet. There's it's the performances along with the incredible direction of Scorsese and Coppola that makes them interesting for us to watch. So first of all, I think it's interesting that you brought up Goodfellas because I think there's so many parallels between this and Goodfellas. Oh, yeah. Sure. Like structurally, there's just a lot that they're ways that they're connected. Right. Even though tonally they're very different. And the other thing is you beautifully set me up for a quote from Scorsese that I wasn't sure exactly where to use. Great. But you 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 brought up like, you know, these very not likable people and how yeah. difficult it is to to make a movie about them and have you interested. And this is what Scorsese says. He says, if you are authentic with the character, people will go on the journey. Yeah. 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 And people instinctively know that. Like I know people might think it's crazy when I make these connections between films and pro wrestling, but authenticity of character is irregardless of the 
surroundings or the medium uh, with which it appears. The reason people love certain pro wrestlers is because there's an authenticity to the character they've created in the construct of pro wrestling. And people instinctively are drawn to authenticity. It doesn't mean that they're that person all day, 24-7. Right. But there's a, it's the best characters, and a lot of people have said this, is an extension of who they are. The best actors are doing an extension of who they are using their talent to construct these um, original and unique interpretations of a character. And so what you have here when you look at uh, Wolf of Wall Street, this is some of DiCaprio's best, if not his best work as an actor in some of the most insane scenes because you buy him as this guy who sees himself as an underdog who is desperate to make as much money as possible because to him it signifies validity. It signifies that he belongs uh, and power. And it's something that you know from the beginning. You Watching him get abused in the first few scenes of the movie verbally immediately puts him in an underdog position. So although we were initially introduced to him throwing um, uh, little people at the darts and, or at boards or whatever, when we go back to see his beginning, he's presented to us as a much more of a underdog and so that we relate to the story because of the authenticity. Plus, in those scenes where he is caught up on the quaaludes and shit, that is some of the best acting you're ever going to see anybody do, again, because it's authentic. It feels authentic to what that experience might be like. Well, and this is, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And the, this idea, which is so prevalent of we need good people to make our stories about or relatable <laughs> people or save the cat yeah. people. And it's like Martin Scorsese's whole career is a rejection of that notion. Yeah, 100%. And, and you think about like, you know, Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver, there is nothing about him that I would like to hang out with. Right. And, and Taxi Driver is a much less fun movie than Wolf of Wall Street. Right. It, you know, and it's to- it is a, it's bleak. Yeah. But but is it authentic? Absolutely. You feel that De Niro is that is his real world. You yeah. feel it, you know. In fact, when he tries to direct films where people are a little more of the straight-laced, goody two-shoes type, it doesn't work. Like New York New York didn't work because yeah. of of that. So you have to have a little bit more of the edgier stuff rolling through that makes it interesting because we all Listen, we all want the uh, good person or whatever, but we're all flawed as human beings. So there's a lot that we confront with our own feelings, our own thoughts that we can live out in the characters that are up on the screen uh, that helps us kind of come to terms with our own stuff. And so I, I think Marty is a master at doing stuff like that. He's he's so good. But before we get into the movie, yeah. um, we put out to our patrons that if they wanted to submit questions that's yeah. one of the perks you get if you can support the show uh on patreon and i wanted to read this one first because i felt like it it, it kind of set the tone for a question i would like to come back to which is sure. uh brennan marr who's a men- member of the advisory board and a great person and yeah. has supported the show for a long time thank you Brennan. um uh he writes there's been some commentary that the film promotes jordan belfort's lifestyle rather than condemning it and that it makes his unethical behavior seem appealing Do you agree with that assessment? Do you believe films have a responsibility to make it clear that certain behaviors are wrong? Or do you believe that that is not the duty of the film? I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. So can I address this? First. Okay. I have been thinking about this for days in preparation for this 
podcast. And so I'm surprised it comes up this early in the podcast, but I'm excited that it does because I want to talk about it. My girlfriend will not see this movie because she's read about Jordan Belfort. She heard about Jordan Belfort and before, because she's all into those Dateline stuff and those uh, news shows and stuff she loves. So she knew about it before the movie came out. And um, I asked her to watch it with me and she wouldn't. She's like, no, I don't want to glorify but but I said, and I you know in the rewatch, I'm even more firm in this. It does not glorify Jordan Belfort. It only glorifies Jordan Belfort if you're the kind of person that would be into living the life that Jordan Belfort lives in this movie, right? Cheating on his wife consistently, sex with random women that he pays for, the office uh, abusing little people, um, uh, using incredible amounts of drugs. Uh, drug driving and drunk driving uh, possibly put, uh, I mean, no, absolutely putting his family in danger, his daughter, young daughter in danger without a seatbelt in the front seat, slamming into poles because he's, dr- he's drugged up in the yacht, almost killing his best friend and his, his wife and his own wife and the captain of the ship and anyone else on the crew on the yacht. Like there are so many things he does that are terrible, terrible things. If you are excited by him and you say to yourself secretly, you wish you could live a life like that, then the problem is not the movie. The problem is you. And I think that's where I look at with these films. If the the director is being very clear that this is a terrible existence to live, and we see scenes where Jordan is confronting the um, consequences of his actions, especially on that flight when he is strapped to the chair and can't get, I mean, the fact that you have him needing Donnie to stroke his head, what kind of person, adult person wants to live like this? So the film itself is showing you the authentic insanity and terrible nature of his uh, actions. His first wife telling him you're selling stock to people who can't afford to lose this kind of money. Aren't you ashamed by this? So there are people there in the movie who are good people, the agent, the federal agent uh, that Kyle Chandler plays, who are pointing out all the negative things he does in the movie. So if you if you are liking this guy and being glorified by this guy or thinking this guy is being glorified, it's because you secretly want to do these things and you don't want to admit it to yourself. And that's the way I look at it in my, in my personal belief because the film, Scorsese does a really good job of showing you what a terrible, terrible person this guy is. I think that was really well said. And and I think for me, mm. there are el- parts of the movie that are fun and funny, but that isn't the same thing as m- it encouraging me to do this behavior. Right. Validating the behavior. Yeah. Because yes. I can watch a moron and these guys are frequently act like morons. They are you morons. Know? Yeah. I can watch them do things and laugh at it. And I can, and, you know, to be very clear, are there beautiful women in this? Do I like beautiful women? Yes. Of course. And so like, and, and, and are, is there a part of my brain that goes, wow, to have that kind of money, that, that would be something, right? I actually don't care about that level of money. Cause it just seems like it doesn't seem that interesting to me, honestly, but, but like, you know, beautiful planes and beautiful women and beautiful houses and, you know, being able to spend money on whatever you want. There's an attraction to that, but I'm with you. These are te- the whole time I'm watching, I'm going, these are terrible people. They are. And this is why this is why the connection to Goodfellas to me is so key, which is that Goodfellas is totally romanticizes the gangster life. Right. 
you know, it starts at a low point and then romant and then tells you how we get there by romanticizing parts of the gangster life. But that doesn't mean that you go, it's cool to be a, ga- a gangster. You see coolness in it, but yeah. they're scumbags, you know? Yeah, there's something my friend uh, Jeff Snyder said from the hot mic. We were, we were talking about The Idol, that show that was on HBO. And he said, let me tell you something about humanity. Everyone's a little bit perverted, which is yeah. why some of these shows are as successful as, now The Idol got canceled, but there are plenty of other shows that kind of play on that a little bit and expose that about ourselves. And the people who want to say that this is glorifying or are the people who don't want to admit that they have an interest in it and they don't like that these films bring up these feelings for them because they think they're good people inside. And how could they possibly want to do the things that the uh, protagonists are doing in the movie if they're good people, right? And that's the thing that I think a lot of viewers get caught up in and don't do the analysis of and understand that. These films are being are presenting these characters in an authentic way. Now, yeah, the money and the glitz and the glamour and the drugs off people's butts and all of that kind of stuff, it's it's crazy. And you may have a secret desire to have done that or wanted to do that. Maybe some of you listening might have done that. I don't know you, I don't know your lines. Um, but then you realize like this is what it all leads to is him turning on his friends, him losing uh, his wife, both wives, uh, you know, his friend dying at 35 years old from a heart attack because of the pace of life that they were living. And eventually he's just an outcast who is doing um, uh, uh, inspirational speeches for people for $30,000 a pop now. So it's, it's those kinds of things like, and, and you're right to make the parallel of Goodfellas, which I hadn't thought about. It's so great, Steve, because at the end of Goodfellas, the last 20 minutes, you see the ramifications of this glorious life that they lived where they were walked through the, kitchen and the best seat in the house the best table but you see all the terrible things they had to do in order to enjoy that momentary night of showing off that they're of their wealth and so it's those kinds of things that you see here in the movie that i think are important to put in context and don't confuse a good looking well shot beautifully cinema beautifully shot cinematography wise um a frenetic paced funny uh charming attractive movie with validating the main character's terrible actions throughout the film. You've got to learn to separate those two when you're watching movies like this. You know, you know what just hit me is I think Steven Spielberg was a seventies filmmaker who then became an eighties filmmaker and then yeah. became a nineties filmmaker and is now a 2020s filmmaker. Yeah. And I think Martin Scorsese has always been a seventies filmmaker. Yeah, that's a great point. That's actually a really great point, Steve. Yeah. He lives, you know, aside from a couple of movies, he lives for the edgier parts of our life and to turn the camera back on us, which I think is really great. And again, the people who feel that it's glorifying it is because they're uncomfortable with how the camera's being turned back on them. Well, you know, it isn't always comfortable to relate to Travis Bickle. Or no. to Ray Liotta, you know, Henry Hill in, in Goodfellas. Right. But, and Martin Scorsese makes you do that because Martin Scorsese is telling you, these are, we are all humans. Right. And humans have all sorts of thoughts and desires and, you know, you, you know, want revenge or want sex or want wealth or want to, you know, the power and all those things that we have those things. And like to behave as if, how dare you point out the truth about humans right. and that we're not perfect is, is a little bit ridiculous. I'll, I'll tell you what he said about it. He said that he wanted to show the fun 
honestly without tipping the scales into anything judgmental. Mm. He he didn't he he was trying very hard to just show yeah. this is what it is and not actively condemn it. But, yeah, so you know. that you would make up your own mind as the viewer. Yeah. 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 That's great. Um, one quick thing about the accuracy of this, because I think both of you and I, it sounds like went down some rabbit holes trying to yeah. find out like well, how much of this is true. Because I'm listening to the book. Yeah. And the tone of the book is exactly what's in the movie. And the book is goes farther. I mean, there's even more stuff in it that's insane. And I'm going, look, first of all, the author of the book, I don't think is a trustworthy human. No. You know, he's I, so I don't trust Jordan Belfort to tell me the truth. Plus, the stories he's telling about are stories where he was drugged out of his mind right. throughout the whole thing. So I was like, how accurate could this be? And then I found a quote from the main FBI agent who who got him arrested. And he said, I tracked this guy for 10 years and everything he wrote is true. <laughs> yeah, a lot of this movie is true, which is insane to think about. There are some details that they've kind of fudged or some things they kind of took yeah. creative license with. But yeah, like Steve said, we I went down some wormholes. He went down some wormholes. Majority of the response back from a lot of people who were involved in this is that it's almost all of it is true, which is really insane to think about um, when you look at it. And I do want to throw one last piece of pre-production in. The whole reason we have the memoir and this movie is because of Tommy Chong. Yep. When Jordan Belfort was convicted for his soft ass sentence of 22 months or three years, rather, and only served 22 months. His cellmate was Tommy Chong, who was in jail for nine months for selling bongs. I mean, of all people, Tommy Chong, uh, who would have thought, and Jordan was barely telling him his stories of all his life and all the things he experienced. And it was Tommy who told him to write a memoir or write a book about it rather. And that's what inspired Jordan to write the memoir. So, what a weird, weird world. We thank you, Tommy Chong. Yeah, thank you, Tommy. I think. Yeah. I think. Um, <laughs> shall we get into the movie? Let's do it. We start off at just a perfect 80s, late 80s, early 90s commercial for Stratton Oakmont with the lion going through the, the offices. And it just, you know, Scorsese says he nails it, obviously. Stratton Oakmont. Stability. Integrity. We cut from that to a bunch of guys counting down, and then a little person flies into frame and sticks onto a Velcro target. And there is Jordan Belfort, Leonardo DiCaprio, who says, 25 And another little person flies towards camera, and we freeze frame on his face. I really think that in this weird way, this is the same as the opening of Goodfellas. Because Goodfellas starts with this horrific act of violence where they're stabbing this guy in the trunk oh, of a yeah, car. Right, yeah. So it starts with a low point, you know, mm-hmm. where you're really disgusted with those people. And then it's going to go back and show you how we get there, yeah. you know. And this isn't violent in that sense, but it is psychologically violent. It is like just a horrible, disgusting moment yeah. to start your movie with. Yeah, well, I think from the beginning, right, the first few scenes doing the commercial – that is his a bit of indictment of the financial institutions that are still around, but who post those commercials. And we see them all the time, right? The yep. whale for prudential life, I think, is what the whale is and all these things that are, you know, we'll help you. You know, your broker makes this much off of you. We won't take a penny unless. So it's all this idea of 
conveying this kind of generational wealth or foundational wealth and that we can help you do this, right? And it's that thing. And so to start off that way, knowing that this is the person who's going to eventually become a person who takes advantage of the system, a person who lies and cheats and steals to make the money that he makes in the system, I think is a great little shot at the financial institutions in our country and some of the nefarious shit they pull just to stay in business and the people who are complicit in helping them to pull that nefarious shit on unsuspecting, hardworking people in, in this country. Well, I mean, the fact that this movie comes out, you know, five years after the financial meltdown. Oh, yeah. That was caused by a bunch of uh, Wall Street, you know, assholes. Which is um, a big short, right? The, yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think I think adds credence to the mm-hmm. the difference between what that commercial is telling you and what their little games are telling you. And I also think with the screenwriter and with Martin Scorsese, the tone of this movie is nailed so perfectly right at the beginning. Yeah. Because while looking at the freeze frame of the little person. My name is Jordan Belfort, not him. And then we cut to the freeze frame of Leo. Me. Right there, you get the sense of humor that we're going to see in the movie. Right. And uh, are you going to be offended by seeing a little person being thrown at a, in essence, a dartboard? This is your... um, nuclear bomb hiding the refrigerator moment like you're either in or you're out and just like you said the beginning of goodfellas you're either in or you're out after we see what they're doing to the guy in the trunk and the it, it also stops in a freeze frame with ray yeah. Liotta's head above the trunk right all my life i wanted to be a gangster so yeah that's it's very it's actually interesting you point out the similarities the year i turned 26 as the head of my own brokerage firm I made $49 million, which really pissed me off because it was three shy of a million a week. The, the, those levels of money are just astounding. Yeah, know? but he's also setting us up to understand that this is a guy who is very, very money hungry. And yeah. you should know this right off the bat. And we see him driving in a red Ferrari. No, 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 no. My Ferrari was white like Don Johnson's in Miami Vice, not red. And in one of our first visual effects shots, the Ferrari turns from red to white. It's really cool. And as he drives by in his white Ferrari, we see that he is receiving some pleasure from <laughs> flan below the steering wheel. Yeah. And then we cut to his house and see that that was his wife, Mar- played by Margot Robbie. Yeah. I Look, Margot Robbie, it's funny. There was a, there's that moment in, um, I just saw Barbie finally. Oh, good. And uh, I really liked it. And there's a line in it, which is like, it's when Margot Robbie has less makeup on and she says, I'm not pretty anymore. And the voiceover comes in with Helen Mirren saying, (laughs) note to the filmmakers, this moment, having casting Margot Robbie doesn't help make this moment work. Which I have to believe they did this in post and realized it and then um, Um, ran it by Margot and confirmed it and then did it because it was so well, so well. It's funny when I went to look it up about apparently there are a bunch of people that hated that line and thought it ruined the whole point of the movie. Oh, my God. That's so dumb. Well, I mean, you're you're always going to find people to say because to me, like that line is hilarious, right. and the fact is, it's meta. Margot Robbie in this film is stunningly gorgeous. I mean, here's the deal. Uh, you know, obviously, we're going to see, literally, see more of her in the movie. But like the thing about her in the film, if you're going to be this, what is in essence, you know, like an objectified glorified uh uh arm candy on the main character you've got to really stand out and there you immediately i mean i remember seeing the movie and i remember immediately going 
that's a star. I just remember thinking that as I watched her in the film. There was something about her energy, right? Steve, we say this all the time. You know it when you see it. You can't quantify it. You can't fully describe it. But you know it and you feel it in your bones when you see a star or a potential star. And I remember feeling that come out of the movie. And it had nothing to do with her um, you know, being nude or anything like that. It wasn't that. It's the way she commanded the screen and held her own with everybody. And this is her debut film on the American shores. You know, it's incredible. Um, there's a moment I saw on social media somewhere, and it's Jim Carrey being interviewed with Margot Robbie. Mm. And he makes some, and I don't remember exactly how he said it, but some disparaging sort of looks like a compliment that isn't where he kind of said, well. And I wanted to talk to you because you're amazing and I'm so excited for you. It's incredible that you've gotten as far as you have with your obvious physical disadvantages. (laughs) Uh, Yes, it was on the Graham Norton show, right, yes. Yeah, and it's like sort of the, you know, you're lucky you're so beautiful kind of a, he's making a joke thing. And it's just so awful. And that is so the opposite of the truth with Margot Robbie because she is fantastic. Right. And, you know, and Carrie is a a hypocrite for saying that nonsense because one of the reasons he succeeded is because he's a good looking comedian. And so fuck him for making that comment about Margot Robbie. There are plenty of generic white Canadian comedians you can see on any kind of stage. There was something about Jim, his boyish good looks that got through to people and they liked him for it. So for him to like kind of call that out about Margot, I think is crazy. And because you're right, Steve, this is a woman of substance. She's not a woman who depends on her TNA or, uh, or plays that up necessarily, even though I know in this film, uh, you know, she's full nude or whatever, but there's, there's a certain level of bravery to do that as well on screen. And so I, you know, she's shown very clearly up until, as you mentioned, Barbie, that this is a woman who had much more going on intellectually than just yeah. being uh, what she is in the movie. Uh, her name has been changed by the way. Uh, the actual wife is named Nadine and um, both with Nadine and with Danny, whose name was changed to Donnie. Both of them threatened to sue the movie if they didn't change the names. <laughs> oh, so that's why they changed the names. Yeah. That's so ridiculous. I guess because what people might look them up. Like it's not that hard to Google people's names. Oh my God, that's so weird. The one with Donnie makes or Donnie Danny makes more sense because the the to me, because having read the book, is that's a lot of different people right. that actually all get combined to be Donnie. Like Donnie is not the guy, or Danny was not the guy that had the incident with the money that led to Brad, whose name I think was actually Paul, getting yeah. arrested. Donnie was not on the yacht with him. It was a different guy. And Donnie did not choke on something. That's also a different guy. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In addition to Naomi and my two perfect kids, I own a mansion, private jet, six cars, three horses, two vacation homes, and a 170-foot yacht. And from this home video footage of all his wealth, Mm. which all seems very classy, I'll use that word advisedly, (laughs) we cut from there to a shot of, there's a lot of things I'm going to have to describe (laughs) talking about this movie. Hello. And this is a shot of an ass pointing skyward. 
And I look, maybe I'm naive here, but I think that he's blowing drugs into the ass. Is that correctly what's happening well, here? I think he's blowing drugs off of the ass. I'm well, this is, you know, off the ass, but I'm not sure. Maybe he is blowing drugs. In the I, I, I know that people, by, by the way, I once invented a uh, verb, which was to supposit. So okay. I believe that he is suppositing something here. Okay. It, because I know that that is something that people do that you absorb drugs. Oh, really? I, I, I don't have experience at this particular thing, but I understand that that is a thing. <laughs> Maybe. I reference the line in Batman. Where you've been spending your nights? <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, fair enough. And maybe some of our listeners could clarify this for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, guys, clarify this. Favorite <laughs> um, drugs blown into your ass. I also gamble like a degenerate. I drink like a fish. I fuck hookers maybe five, six times a week. I have three different federal agencies looking to indict me. Oh yeah, and I love drugs. And then what I think is just a perfect moment. Again, this is why Scorsese is so great. Is there? There's a noise. And he goes from completely involved in whatever it is he's doing to completely paranoid. Again, this is great. This is what great films do. They lay the groundwork right off the bat in the first few scenes with this character, right? We see him bragging about his wealth because we're going to find out that Jordan is someone who really thinks that money is the most important thing in life. It, 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 it equates to validity or status for him. So he is bragging right off the bat about the money. Uh, and then he's showing us, you know, and then we're seeing the sexual stuff that goes on, the nudity and whatever, the uh, the um, uh, oral sex in the car, all of that. And then we see his paranoia, right? Mm -hmm. We get a sample of that as well. And then what we just saw, in, uh, as Steve said here in this final scene before we jump into the rest of the movie, but he was, you're getting a good idea of who this character is. And this is the moment we go, well, do I want to keep watching this film or not? Because he's making it very clear what kind of person this is. Well, and it's also, you see why Martin Scorsese said, I need total freedom. Yes. If we're really going to go for it because, and you see why Warner brothers was like, so we have our movie star, good looking Leonardo DiCaprio hovering over a naked ass and putting, you know, doing something there that we don't like, this is how you're opening your movie. Yeah. Like that is a lot of a lot that you're dealing with. And then the next thing we see is him completely fucked up trying to land a helicopter. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Woof which is an actual thing that happened. Yep. Well, and this is also, I mean, the power of money yeah. to make people do things. You know that pilot is going, I could die right now, yep. but he's paying, he's going to hand me an extra 10 grand, you know, if he lands this thing correctly or something. You know what I mean? Like that's yep. the thought process all the people around them go through. I think a lot of us in our lives, if you look at the symbolism of that scene, a lot of us are the passenger in that, and the rich of this country are Jordan Belford flying that helicopter. Yep. And we're all, uh, at times, at the mercy of the intoxicated rich, not necessarily by drugs or alcohol, but by money. And um, it's an unfortunate truth. And so that scene carries a lot of weight watching for me watching it this time around. Well, and it's 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 like in this particular case, it's this guy is risking his life, right, to do this. Yeah, there are other cases where staff, assistants, servants, whatever, are really being party to our enablers of abuse. Yeah, you know, it's like the Weinstein thing, where you, if you're the person delivering the young actress to Harvey Weinstein, you know what's going on there. Yes, you know. Yeah, and that's the power of rich people too. You know. Yeah, and the thing is. If you're complicit in making that happen, 
you have to take responsibility for complicity. Really, I think it's so important. People want to tell other people to take responsibility, but if you're complicit in that, you have to take a little bit of responsibility. It doesn't mean we can't understand why you were in that position or why you did the things you did, but you also have to take responsibility. You're an adult. You made an adult decision. You got to live by it. Well, and you know, it's like, you know, I'm skipping to the end, but you, you mentioned, you know, he got whatever two years or whatever his sentence was. And is that someone who robbed a liquor store for 50 bucks that had a gun, they're in for 10 years. Right. You know, and this guy, this guy stole $200 million and ruined uncounted numbers of lives. His crimes in my mind are way fucking worse. And he, we have him, we were gonna do this a lot, he's talking to camera, and, and Leo's great at all of this. I take Quaaludes 10 to 15 times a day for my back pain, Adderall to stay focused. Xanax to take the edge off, pot to mellow me out, cocaine to wake me back up again, and morphine well, because it's awesome. Morning, make them. Look, I, I've, I've had my experiences uh, with some substances. Oh my, yes. This list is fucking insane. Jordan Belfort, after seeing the movie, said his actual habits were much worse than is depicted in the film and that he was on at least 22 different drugs at the end. Wow. Wow, man. Okay. Yeah. But of all the drugs under God's blue heaven, there is one that is my absolute favorite. And we cut to cocaine. By the way, the, the cocaine that they used was vitamin D powder. Is what the And apparently... Uh, Jonah Hill was hospitalized because he got bronchitis for snorting too much of it. Yeah. That's messed up. And that's, I mean, I've had bronchitis a lot. I've never been hospitalized for it. So that tells you how bad he got the bronchitis from this stuff. So yeah. Enough of this shit will make you invincible. Able to conquer the world and eviscerate your enemies. And you're thinking as you're watching that we're talking about cocaine. But that is not what he's talking about. And I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about this. And he snaps a $100 bill to the camera. And what I think, what makes the moment so perfect is he just said this is his favorite drug. And what does he do with that $100 bill? He crumples it up and throws it away. Money doesn't just buy you a better life, better food, better cars, better pussy. It also makes you a better person. (laughs) Yeah, we're getting his credo. Yeah. So, I mean, so that's why I'm fascinated by people who are like, it glorifies this guy. No, he's saying it very clearly, the kind of asshole he is. Well, and the thing is, and this is maybe to your original point, Mm. there are a lot of people who think this. And even if they don't think that they think this, they think this. And what I mean by that is that having a lot of money and having people kiss your ass constantly makes you feel like you are a superior kind of person. Right. You might, if, and if someone said this philosophy, does having more money make you a better person? You might say, absolutely not. That's crazy. Right. But that is in fact what's happening to you because of how you're getting treated and what you get to do because you have so much money. Yeah, 100%. And now we go, and again, it's kind of like Goodfellas because we're going to get his origin story, which is we see him pull up to work and he is going to work as a junior stockbroker at Rothschild. And the first thing that his new boss says to him is, You are lower than pond scum. You got a problem with that, Jordan? And I, I like that Jordan knows enough to not argue. No, no problem at all. Good, because that is what you are, pond scum. And they kind of tell him what his job is, which is basically he's going to make the phone call to connect the broker's 
to their clients. Right, just so you know, last year, I made over $300,000. The other guy you'll be working for, he made over a million. And then we get to meet Mark Hanna, who is his real name. Yeah. Uh, and this is Matthew McConaughey. Full, fully McConaughey. Oh, my God, yes. Such a great cameo. In essence, a glorified cameo in the movie. Because we never see him again after these two scenes. Right. Uh, we don't start dialing at 9.30 because our clients are already answering the phone. Three, two, one, let's fuck! And then you get just, I think only Martin Scorsese can move the camera around like this. Mm-hmm. Just, it's it has so much energy and it's frenetic and you see the tension and the excitement of this world that Jordan Belfort has entered into. Uh, he does and we do. Yeah. So, you know, we get to, and you know, if you're old enough, when you see this movie, it's very reminiscent of Wall Street, the uh, Oliver Stone movie. So you have some shades of connection to Mm. that vibe and that feeling uh, when you're in that uh, sequence here. And he's in over his head. So we're like with him because who hasn't been the, the new guy inside of a thing that's already working, showing up and feeling like you're behind right off the bat. So we're immediately, as I said, you're presenting him as an underdog. It's smart. He's taking the bus to Wall Street to work. His wife kisses him, you know, wishes him well. So it's like this is a different guy than we're going to meet. Uh, it's a much more, uh, uh, how can I say this, a much more grounded guy um, initially. And then things start to spiral from this lunch he's about to have with Mark Hanna. So there's a, there's a book by Michael Lewis, who's mm. the guy who wrote Moneyball, because he was a stockbroker kind of in this era mm. um, on Wall Street. And he wrote a book about it called Liar's Poker. And while the world that he describes wasn't isn't at the Jordan Belfort level. Yeah, it ain't. It's it's around there, you know, Not that far off. <laughs> yeah, it's adjacent. Um, really good book e- explaining sort of this world. And it's just shocking to me, like seeing this guy because this they're at Rothschild. This is the classy firm. You know what I mean? Yeah, right, Compared right. to where we're going to end up with Jordan Belfort's firm. You want to know what money sounds like? Go to a trading floor on Wall Street. Fuck this, shit that, cunt, cock, asshole. I couldn't believe how these guys talk to each other. I was hooked in seconds. It was like mainlining adrenaline. Yeah, fuck face. Look at where the stock's at today, huh? And you hear them just yelling and screaming about the money. And we hear that Mark Hanna has made, sold 2,000 shares of Microsoft. And he's taken an instant sort of attraction or noticing of Jordan Belfort. And then he invites him to lunch. And the scene at lunch in the fancy little dining hall starts with McConaughey making this weird chest-thumping percussive sound. And do you want to know how this got in the movie? Uh, from what I understand, he improvised it, right? It wasn't It wasn't in the script. It is not in the script, but he didn't improvise it. What happened was Leo sees McConaughey just doing this weird thing on the set one day oh. and sneaks over to Scorsese and goes, Marty, Marty, look at that. And Marty's like, we got to put this in the movie. <laughs> and then it becomes a whole thing that becomes a part of the film just yeah. because this is some weird thing McConaughey does. It's probably to loosen up his vocal cords, I would imagine, as an actor. I'm sure sh- work is done in your chest area to loosen up your vocal cords. Yeah. A, that makes perfect sense. And B, I am sure if we had Matthew McConaughey here, <laughs> he would have a whole story about it. <laughs> Truth. 
By the way, it was also, this is my greatest star sighting moment after moving to LA, oh. which is we were at the Hollywood star lanes, which is where big Lebowski was. Yeah. And I was with Vogel and Mike Ross and Dan and Elena. And we look out and there in the bowling is Angelina Jolie, Billy Bob Thornton and Penelope Cruz. What? And then, uh, Elena's boyfriend at the time had gone to college with Matthew McConaughey oh. and he is sitting at the bar. Oh, wow. And so he goes, well, I'm going to go say hi to Matthew. And we go like, well, what should we do? Should we go with you or should yeah. not go with you? He's like, well, maybe give him some space at first and then I'll wave you over. And then he went over, he's talking to him and we're standing there. And you know how there's a certain moment where you're awkwardly standing, not speaking, that you become aware of how yeah. obvious it looks that you're yeah. just standing there. Yeah. <laughs> so we decide to go over. Oh. And so we walk up and he's kind of making introductions and then somebody bumps into me. And I noticed, by the way, this person who bumped into me had very soft skin oh. on their arm. Just something I became aware of. And I look over and the person who bumped into me was Matt Damon. Oh, wow. They're all hanging out together. And Matt Damon came up and saw me talking to Matthew McConaughey. Right. So he looks at me like, are you someone I'm supposed to know? Right, right. And so instead of going like, hi, he goes, oh, hey. As if, because he's trying to cover for the fact that he doesn't know who I am. And I was so shocked and taken aback right. by the fact that there's Matt Damon and his very soft skin that I went, hey. And I sort of gave him a dismissive hey, although Ooh, as cool. if I was cooler than him. Right, right. That was the greatest star sighting night I've ever had. Um, but <laughs> we digress. Yes, yes. Um, anyway, the first thing that uh, Mark Hanna does at this fancy dining room is to snort some cocaine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, thank you, though. Mm-hmm. And then he says, when the waiter comes over... Well, Hector, here's the game plan. You're going to bring us two absolute martinis. You know how I like them, straight up. And then precisely seven and one half minutes after that, you're going to bring us two more. Then two more after that, every five minutes until one of us passes the fuck out. <laughs> Excellent strategy, sir. And here's Jordan, only wanting water... Mm-hmm. Refusing the drink. Again, this is a different Jordan who is much more trying to make an impression and not get caught up in the negative stuff and really earn his keep. Uh, and uh, Mark is like, oh, he's still new here. He'll learn. You know? It's so funny that the, it's like um, evil drug addict Yoda is, is the Marcana character. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm going to lay the deep wisdom on you. Um, and <laughs> I also... I. Okay. I so feel for this waiter who has to wait on this asshole. And I just think about, I mean, so much of the industry of the, of the service industry in this area lives on ridiculous, uh, wall street bros coming in and dropping 10 grand on a bottle of wine or something. Yep. And so they have to kiss the ass of these people that they probably hate, you know, take the abuse. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. yep. Mr. Hanna, you were able to, Drugs during the day and then still function, still do your job. How the fuck else would you do this job? Cocaine and hookers, my friend. And Jordan is still try- kind of kissing up, like like in a normal employee boss sort of situation. Name of the game: move the money from your client's pocket into your pocket. This is, I think, one of the key moments in understanding this movie because he says, "Right, but if you can make a client's money at the same time, it's advantageous to everyone." Correct? No. Number one rule of Wall Street, nobody 
I don't care if you're Warren Buffett or if you're Jimmy Buffett, nobody knows if the stock is going to go up, down, sideways, or in fucking circles, least of all stockbrokers. It's like, it's like your agent or something, you know, where it's yeah. like, we think, oh, the basic idea is you make money and I make money. So if you help me make money, that's how you make your money. And that is not what Mark Hanna is saying. Nope. He is saying, I am taking your money. Right. That is what it's about. This whole scene is a wake up call. Yeah. For anybody who does not know about stocks or wants to get into, you know, investing in these kinds of things and then being aware of the brokers at that time. I mean, I'm sure there's still some nefarious brokers nowadays, but certainly at that time in the 80s and 90s, which is when this film was set, um, there's a lot of nefarious shit going on with these brokers and the decisions that they're making with people's money. And this idea that it's got to be a cycle to make them reinvest that money so that they still have the ability to brag about how wealthy they are. Like you said, on paper, he says in the scene on paper, um, you don't want them to actually take the money out uh, because then they might not reinvest with you next time around, you know? Yeah. Well, it, as soon as they take the money out, you have to get them to put it back into something. Right. And Cause you don't like to do that. Yeah. Cause you're going to make money off that commission. Exactly. You know, um, I think there's a way in which this movie does do a disservice on some level okay. because he's so obviously a scumbag with the drugs and the hookers mm -hmm. and all of the, you know, insanity of this character. It, it makes you condemn him for all of those reasons yeah. and blinds you to the not an addict, totally sober, completely reasonable, good family man, multi-billionaire hedge fund manager who's doing a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, maybe not to this degree and maybe not illegally, but actually is ending up taking a whole bunch of poor people's money. You know, yeah. you know, like you look at Enron or something like that. Yeah. Which, you know, um, uh, and I do want to I just want to highlight this thing of that Mark Hanna says about nobody actually can predict what's about going to happen, what's going to happen. I think if there's any lesson to learn from this movie or about investing or the economy, it's that nobody makes good predictions. Yeah. Period. Like, you know, you'll hear we're going to get killed by inflation and then there's no inflation. And then you hear there's not going to be an inflation, ton of inflation. Like over, nobody predict, very few pick, people predicted the 2008 meltdown. Like people, we are terrible about predicting things. In general, the stock market will go up. I can make that prediction, but I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. Right. right. No way to know. We don't create shit. We don't build anything. So if you got a client <clears throat> who bought stock at eight mm -hmm. and it now sits at 16 and he's all fucking happy, he wants to cash in, liquidate, take his fucking money and run home, you don't let him do that. Okay. Because that would make it real. Right. No. What do you do? You get another brilliant idea, mm -hmm. a special idea, another situation, another stock to reinvest his earnings and then some. Is that you want him to get rich on paper, but you don't want him to take the money off the table. Right. And Jordan Belfort? eating this stuff up. How have you ever had your boss ask if you jerk off and how often you do it? Uh, that's not their business. Yeah. This is not, this is not a question that I've been asked by a boss. Yeah. I jerk off. Yeah. How many times a week? Like, um, three, three, four, three, four times. Maybe I gotta pump those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers in this racket. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, this is the thing. It's a funny movie. Yes. Oh, sure. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't like the people that I'm watching, but it is a funny movie. Yeah. And I think that's where the confusion lies with people who think it's a glorifying of this behavior because there's humor, but 
again, that's not glorifying the behavior. It's making the film enjoyable to you um, from these jokes. And what are the jokes, though? The jokes are, I need you to masturbate three times a day to be able to handle the stress of this job. Again, it's presented in a very cool, funny, um, uh, uh, giggling to yourself kind of package, right? But in reality, he's not lying, and this is his method, yep. and he will absolutely exhaust himself doing that, and it's to, so that he can remain calm. It's basically trying to remove testosterone from your body so that you don't overreact to situations, and that's why he's trying to you know, get him to masturbate three times a day, which is insane. But the, but the, the trade-off, cause the other, um, the other requirement is to do a bunch of cocaine. Yeah, right. Exactly. The and so it's like, so maybe if you didn't do so much cocaine, you wouldn't need to relax through masturbation quite so often. <laughs> like, and, and what I think though, is that, you know, you said at the very beginning, if you're attracted to the things in this movie, it's cause you have a secret desire to do those things. Yeah. And that is fucking Jordan Belfort. Oh, like, yeah. And, and what this movie is saying is like, you know, those forbidden thoughts you have, those things you could never voice or never do or never get, guess what? You can have them. You can voice them and you can do them. And not only that, but the most successful guy you've ever met is encouraging you yeah. to do those terrible things that you secretly kind of want to do. Yeah. And we cut to a strip club and look, there is a lot of nudity in this movie. There's a lot. There's a ton of. And we see that he's partying and then we hear that it's heading towards where he's finally going to get his brokerage license and he can be a real broker and he gets ready to show up for his first day as a master, future master of the universe. And we hear that it was October uh, 19, 1987. They called it Black Monday. No shit. By 4 p.m. the market had dropped 508 points. The biggest plummet since the crash of 29. I remember this, by the way. Yeah, I remember. I totally remember Black Monday. Yeah. Um, and basically everybody, including Mark Hanna, is freaking out. And this killed Rothschild. This was an institution since 1899, and it closed its doors yeah. after Black Monday. Crazy. Which means Jordan Belfort's out of a job. And he's sitting with his wife, and they're talking about whether or not they have to pawn her engagement ring because they're out of money. Oh, and one thing I should say. Jordan Belfort was already bankrupt at the time he showed up to work at Rothschild. Wow. He had had some kind of like meat delivery business or something that went 20 grand in debt. And so he had to declare bankruptcy. So he's already deep in debt when he's at this point. And they're looking around for, you know, any kind of job in retail or whatever. And he says, look, nobody's looking for a stockbroker. Yeah. Uh, this place is. And we see an ad for a Long Island stockbroker's. Long Island. I want to say something. Christina Miliotti, who plays uh, mm -hmm. his first wife, Teresa, she's such a damn good actress. Uh, and this film is full of damn good actors in smaller roles that you catch watching it all these years later who have come, like Aya Cash, which we'll meet later as Janet. She was uh, so good in worst, the Worst People in the World, that FX show, and then on The Boys in season three. So you have like these great and Christine Reality now has kind of blown up over the last few years with her Made for Love series on HBO Max. She was in that Palm Springs film with Adam Sandberg. Uh, hmm. is that, yeah, is that is Andy Sandberg? Sorry, uh, where they go you know back in time, back forth in time, the Godfather, uh, uh, Groundhog Day type stuff, and then her recent one, um, which was the uh, going out into the. 
um, finding out in this mystery that's on was on Peacock. I think it was it was called um, I don't know the Chateau or something like that. So she's piece by piece been building herself up. So this is such a small role, but you can tell that there's a strength in her eyes in what she's doing, right? And I, whoever's the cast director of this film deserves a lot of credit for finding these incredibly talented people, even though they're going to have little roles in the overall scope of the movie. They deliver some really nice moments that give an authenticity to the film. And you can believe that this is the woman who was married to Jordan okay. Belford and having this conversation with him, you know? I mean, that's part of the thing of being Martin Scorsese is that, you, you know, you, you if Martin, if you got a call to be in a Martin Scorsese movie, I, I'm assuming that you would take the gig. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, and he looks into uh, Investor Center in Long Island in this sort of retail strip mall and their guys on the phone. And you can see right away that he likes it, you know. Yeah. And then he goes to meet Dwayne, the uncredited Spike Jones. <laughs> There are three great or three very prominent directors in this movie. Yeah. We have Spike Jones. Later, we're going to have Rob Reiner, who we already saw a picture of very briefly. And then you got John Favreau. Yeah. Um, all of whom are good in this movie. <laughs> uh, I, In fact, I think Spike Jones is great in this scene. Yes. No, no, we don't even need computers here. We just trade right off the pink sheets here. Pink the, sheets? Uh, yeah, they're penny stocks. You know, uh, companies that can't get listed on NASDAQ, they don't have enough capital. Their shares trade here. And then I love that Dwayne sort of gives a pitch for this one stock. This one, uh, Aerotyne, is a really interesting, or uh, Aerotyne. Aerotyne, yeah. Aero, Aerotyne. Aerotyne, yeah. Very hot stock right now. Yeah? Yeah, there's just a couple of brothers that are making radar detectors out of their garage. They're out in Dubuque. Maybe it's microwaves. I'm not sure, but you call the company's the main line. Their mom, Dorothy, answers, and she is so sweet. The company. I actually don't know what else to, I don't know anything else about them other than that. <laughs> because it doesn't matter. He doesn't care. No. And the fact that he has to clarify if it's Aerodyne or Aerotyne, yeah. I think is a great moment as well that shows you how little they care. But these guys are grinding a life out in those sales offices, right? Just like yep. Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross. They're grinding totally. a life out, these guys, with penny stocks. And as we find out later, you know, in that scene, he's going to get 50% of the commission. So- they're probably grinding for trying to make 80 to $100 a day just so they can be able to pay their rent at the end of the month and provide for their kids or their wife or whatever. So this is the kind of lower-level life it's tough to uh, exist in. Buys this crap. Well, I mean, honestly, mostly schmucks. Postmen, there's always postmen. Right. Uh, plumbers, um, they see our ads in the back of uh, Hustler and Popular Mechanics, and our, our ads actually say they can get rich quick. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you the story of one of my dumb investment moves? Oh, yes, please. So I invested in a penny stock. Mm. It was a, a kid's like a kid's party place called mm. Giggles and Hugs. And I went there, and I'm like, they run a good operation. Like this is, And they were trying to be like a national chain. Yeah. And they had like three locations. And I went and I looked them up and it was like four cents a share. And I went, okay, I'll, I'll buy like a thousand shares or something, you know, which is, you know, a few hundred bucks, basically. I yeah. said, I'll invest in this company. And when you, when you buy stock, you can decide if you want a market order, which means it's at whatever price it's selling at. Or if you want a limit order, which says, don't go above this, you know, if the stock goes above this price, I don't want to buy it. Or if it goes down to this price, then I would buy it or whatever. Well, I, 
put in a market order because, it, you know, I didn't really think about it because stocks don't change that much. Mm -hmm. I didn't think about the fact that I buying a penny stock at four cents a share was actually a whale. And I personally drove the stock price up to eight cents and it cost me twice as much as I thought it would. <laughs> anyway, and that company has since gone bankrupt. So anyway, so all in all is bad. But what we find out is that normally when you sell a stock, you get a 1% commission. You know, so if you sell 10,000 shares of stocks, you get a hundred bucks. All right. But on this, you get a 50% commission. And the reaction is... It's 50%? 50% commission? Yep. For what? It's our markup for our services. So I had to look this up because I didn't understand how this was legal or how this was possible. This is it, this is actually real. This it really was a fifty percent commission essentially, and it is what it is. Is it's not really a commission. It is a markup because mm. these shares aren't publicly listed anywhere. Right. So you like normally, I you used to go to the newspaper, you go online, and you look at oh, this is what Apple is trading at today or whatever. Well, there's no way to check what these stocks are trading at right. because they're not listed anywhere. So when you're buying a stock from Investor Center for Aerodyne or whatever. You're not buying it from Aerodyne or from other some other client. You are buying it from Investor Center. Right. They bought the stock for six cents. They sell it to you for nine cents. Right. And that is the 50. They mark you up 50% of the price. And that is where that commission comes from. <laughs> and the thing is, you as the buyer have no fucking idea what they're selling you. Right. Because it's not listed anywhere. There's no, there's so you're totally blind to what they're doing. Yeah. Which I, I, I understand it's not illegal, but it's fucking immoral, you yeah. know? Oh, it is moral. Totally. Yeah. So if I, if I, if I sell a stock at $10,000, my commission is 5,000 bucks. If you sell $10,000 worth of this stock, I will personally give you a blowjob for free. <laughs> and I hope it happens. <laughs> and then Jordan Belfort sits down to a phone and starts to sell. <laughs> Great stuff. And, it's great. And I love the reactions of the other brokers around the room as slowly but surely each one of them stops yeah. and goes, what's going on with this guy? Something just came across my desk, John. It is perhaps the best thing I've seen in the last six months. If you have 60 seconds, I'd like to share the idea with you. You got a minute? Now, we just heard what Aerodyne is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Name of the company, Aerotyne International. It is a cutting-edge, high-tech firm out of the Midwest awaiting imminent patent approval on a next generation of radar detectors that have both huge military and civilian applications. And then the perfect cut to the garage, yeah. the exterior of the garage of where this company is. So good. And more people look over. Right now, John, the stock trades over the counter at 10 cents a share. And by the way, John, our analysts indicate it could go a heck of a lot higher than that. By the way, the constant repetition of your name is a sales tactic that always rubs me the wrong way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And particularly if you combine it with the friendly touch, like on your shoulder or something, you know, Steve, you know, Steve, I think something, Steve, you would like, I'm like, stop, stop doing this. Yeah, I was in sales for a long time in my 20s. Like, um, it was, it was not a great experience. I hated it. And those things they teach you you're in essence being told to lie to people to try to get them to buy yeah. your shit. And it's always rubbed me the wrong way, you know, and some people have the ability, great salespeople have the ability 
to lie to you and try to get as much money out of your pocket as possible. And they rationalize it by saying, if I can get it from you, then it's your fault, not mine. And so it's, it's a horrific thing when you see how people live their life like that. I, I, well, and I mean, like what we hear, and by the way, now the whole office is watching it. And I think by, that Spike Jones, that Dwayne looks a tiny bit concerned. Yeah. And you notice he doesn't become part of Stratton, Stratton Oakmont, you know? He, he, he drifts away. So maybe he has slightly more morality than some of these other people. Your profit on a mere $6,000 investment would be upwards of $60,000. Jesus, that's my mortgage, man. Exactly. You could pay off your mortgage. I don't know if you find this upsetting, but I'm just with the guy who's going to lose his house. Oh, 100%. Yeah. You know, you know yes. Look, the, the, Film can fool you in this moment that you're supposed to be marveling at what uh, Jordan is doing because you're getting these other actors, by the way, great cast character actors who play all these roles, watching him, being impressed by him. But look at the people who are being impressed by him and their looks and their um, general hygiene and upkeep and uh, energy that they're radiating off. Are those the people that you want to connect with as being impressed by this guy? Or do you want to focus on the people that this guy is scamming out of their money? So again, these are one of these moments. It looks like they're glorifying it, but it isn't glorification at all. It is actually showing you which side of the fence you want to be on. And if you are instinctively drawn to be impressed by Jordan and ignore that he's fleecing people out of their money, hardworking people out of their money with his lies. And again, the problem is not the movie. The problem is you. And so I'm just trying to clarify that in certain moments in the film as we go along. Well, I also think, but again, I also think this is like Goodfellas in the sense that as we're being introduced to the world of the gangster, it is romanticized. And so you're seeing you're you, and you see little bits of the violence. Like you see this guy get beat up outside the cafe or the restaurant or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you also see him get to intimidate his postman who delivered the grades that shouldn't have been delivered. And you go, and part of you watching that or part of one watching that could go, Oh, that's, you see why he likes that. Yes. You know, that power. I hate those scenes because my dad was a blue collar guy. And so when I watched scenes like that, like in the Sopranos, that, um, that episode where they kill the waiter, Paulie and Chris, who comes out to Mm -hmm. insult him for not tipping. I cried in that scene because that reminded me of my dad who yeah. was, you know, at the last few years of his life before he got cancer, he was a head banquet waiter down in D.C. And I could only imagine that moment happening to my father because he, my dad didn't take bullshit off anybody. And so it just made me cry in that moment because I'm like, yeah, as much as I may enjoy and it's fun to watch these actors play these characters, they're terrible, terrible fucking people. Well, um, but you're right. They, it, can, it can make it look cool and charming and interesting, but if you're analyzing it, he's Scorsese is letting you is showing you that this is not a good thing that this guy's doing. I, I totally agree. Well, and that's why I like this guy saying that's my mortgage. Yes, you right. Know, is no makes purpose. Yeah, it, yeah. Because because what they said about the clients is that they're mailmen and postmen and uh, right. garbage men and you know these are guys that have busted their asses their whole life right. to try to pay off that mortgage, and then someone's right. going to swoop in and. You know, and and as they as Mark Hanna said, we don't know if the stock's going to go up or down. Right. You know, the odds are with these penny stocks, you're going to lose everything, like I did on Giggles and Hugs. <laughs> um, 
and he finishes. The guy says he's going to do four grand. And I, and I love I love the technical bullshit talk of. Let me lock in that trade right now and get back to you with my secretary with an exact confirmation. Sound good, John? Great. Hey, John, thank you for your vote of confidence and welcome to the Investor Center. John just feels great about it. The client is like, this is great. I found this great person, hangs up the phone. And then uh, Ethan Suplee, who plays Toby, says, how'd you fucking do that? And then the whole office erupts in applause. Just like that, I made two grand. The other guys looked at me like I just discovered fire. (laughs) And then we cut two shots of a beautiful Jaguar. Yeah. And we're at like a diner. And there is Jonah Hill, who plays Donnie. What do you think of his character in this film? This is one of the greatest, if not the seminal Jonah Hill performance at this point in his career. I loved him in Moneyball, don't get me wrong. But this is an actor. And this is like Daniel Day-Lewis type level actor in this role. Because so much of what he's doing and the look of it all, it doesn't feel like Jonah Hill at all, even though it is Jonah Hill. The choppers, the white choppers, the big glasses, the curly hair, the weird combo of the acid wash jeans with the uh, bright colored plaid shirt, like all of it in combo. And then what Jonah does here is he plays Donnie throughout the whole movie, but especially in this scene, you can sense there's a little bit of sliminess here. And he's being nice. He's being respectful. But there's a sliminess just bubbling under the surface here. And he does a great job of never really dialing into it too much, but certainly having it sitting there in every one of his scenes as the movie goes along, including this one. I, I First of all, I agree. It's a great performance. And it's, it's funny. It's kind of like Leonardo DiCaprio in its own way, which is because I first discovered him in, um, what's the comedy? Uh, oh, yeah, Superbad. Yes. In Superbad. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is a funny, you know, child actor kind of guy. And I thought that's what he was. And then you, I saw him in Moneyball and I was like, oh, there's kind of more to him. He's the, they, he's a good actor. And then I see him in this and I'm like, holy shit. And, you know, obviously Leonardo DiCaprio is one of our great actors. Right. I didn't know he was one of our great actors 20 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I just thought he was an actor, you know, but he but he clearly is great. And I, I, I think it's yes, there is a sliminess. There's also a, I, he's that person who makes me uncomfortable to be around. And I don't quite, you know, it's like, why? That's the sliminess. Yeah. Well, I, for me, sliminess means is more like the, you know, the Spina scumbag. Like I think Jordan Belfort is. Oh, oh. But I understand. Yeah. I think we're probably saying the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Would you say like the John Bernthal character is more slimy in comparison to? Yes. Jonah Hill's character. Yeah. Okay, that's Creep, maybe more creepy. There's something. Yeah. There's Creep. something off. Right. He is not. He's not vibrating at the same speed as other <laughs> humans about this character. It's by the way. It's based on this guy Danny uh, Perush, yeah. uh, and as I said, he threatened to sue the movie if they used his name. And the first thing we find out is that they live in the same building. Him and Jordan Belfort, which was true. And they actually didn't meet like this. They met in the, I think their wives met each other. No, it was, um, it was his wife, Jordan Belfort's wife, who rode the bus to work with mm. uh, the Donnie character in real life. And then she was the one that introduced him to Jordan because she wanted him to help Jordan, wanted Jordan to help him with some company he was trying to figure out how to function, how to work or how to put in motion. And so that's how they got to know each other. And 
it goes from there, you know. You make a lot of money. Yeah, I do all right for myself. I'm trying to put it together. You got your fucking nice car. Mm -hmm. We live in the same building. I just, I'm not understand how much, how much money you make. Which generally people don't ask how much money you make. And it's all weird and awkward and uncomfortable. I don't know. 70,000 last month. <laughs> the fuck? The fuck, fuck out of here. I'm serious. Yeah, no, I'm serious too. Seriously, how much money you make? So great. Even you re recounting it is so good because it's such a great scene because he's legitimately shocked. He's legitimately yeah. like, no, 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 no. Tell me the real truth about what's going on here. And Caprio does such a great job just being nonplussed about it all. Like, yeah, yeah I, I told you how much I made. We're actually 72. It's so good, the back and forth, as a great introduction to this, this friendship, you know? One of the things they did during the movies, they had a rehearsal process and they did a lot of improv. So they would have the scene as written and then they would improv around it. So they might take a two minute scene and improv an hour scene out of it. Mm. And then they, they would kind of focus that in and then they would either write up some of the things that they did in the improv. And then they would also improv on the set. Um, mm. And there's a thing that happens and these guys do it really, really well. But when actors improv, there's a tendency to be repetitive Yes. You know, yes. like, and you could hear and, and hear it's done so well, but it does, it does mean, Hey, I'm not going to cut to all the dialogue because it's a little repetitive, right. but in their performance, it's so funny. You know, you made 72 grand in one month. Yeah. I tell you what, you show me a pay stuff for $72,000 on it. I quit my job right now and I work for you. Jordan opens up his briefcase. He pulls out a check. <laughs> The next thing we know, Donnie is on a payphone quitting his job. That's so great. No, no, no. Uh, I quit. I'm just quit. And then he's, I guess the guy on the other line says something about his, well, you got to tell his wife. And it's like, well, we got to bring the wives. Why do you got to bring the wives into this? It's so funny. There were other things about him too, like his phosphorescent white teeth. Your wife, I got to fucking deal with your wife. The fact that he wore horn rims with clear lenses just to look more waspy. And then there were these rumors. We cut to them at a bar. And again, this is where the imp improv sort of comes in. He says, he's trying to bring up this rumor. That's shit about you and your cousin or something like that. I don't even listen to it. It doesn't even... Oh, that's not like that. No, it's not like that. You know what I mean? Like, you married your cousin or some stupid shit, you know? Yeah, my wife. Yeah, my wife is my cousin or whatever, but it's not like what you think or whatever, you know? <laughs> this is such a great scene because it's a window into Donnie as a salesman. And mm. he is not denying the right. stories. He is just using some sort of pretzelian, pretzelian logic to. That is a good term. Thank you to <laughs> to explain why he married his cousin, and in some really fucked up way, you can see the logic, even though you don't agree with the logic. You can see the logic and how one might lie to themselves about why they would do something like this. I, it, it's funny. It just occurred to me, the movie that is Donnie's movie instead of Jordan's movie oh. is even freakier than Jordan's movie. Come on. I want that as a series on, oh on Showtime right now. Because oh um, his thought process, like I can, I think Jordan Belfort is a scumbag. Sure. I, but I can understand his thought process to some degree. Whereas Donnie's, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what's real. I don't know. I have no idea. Because his little monologue about. Well, you know, look, we grew up together. 
And she grew up hot, you know, she right. fucking grew up hot. And all my friends were trying to fuck her, you know, and I, I was, I'm not gonna let someone, you know, one of these assholes fuck my cousin. Oh, so, yeah. you know, I used the cousin thing as like, yeah, yeah. like an in with her. I'm, I'm not gonna let someone else fuck my cousin. You what? know, if anyone's gonna fuck my cousin, it's, it's gonna be me out of, out of respect, you know? Yeah. That is some logic. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's Pretzelian. I mean, it's because <laughs> it's fascinating that he's saying that. Because, I mean, look, it's not that far of a jump from cousin to sister in the logic that he's using. So it's a real creepy um, a rationalization that yeah. he's making in this in this scene, you know, because he's saying I'm not going to. I mean, I, all these guys wanted to do it. I would damn if everybody was going to do it but me because I actually cared about it. And then he says he lets it slip because I used it as an in. So he clearly was, you know, had been trying to manipulate the situation. And then we get into this whole discussion of essentially they're talking about birth defects and what happens if they have kids and there's a problem. And he goes, I look, man, a lot of having a kid or whatever takes risks, whether you're fucking cousins or not. What, what if you, I mean, what if something like that happened? I basically, you know, if the kid was retarded, I would, I would, you know, drive it up to the country and just like, you know, open the door and let us say, you're free now, you know, like run free. You know? I think this moment oh, is the do I amuse you Joe Pesci moment from Goodfellas in a oh, weird way yeah. because he's I I think he is fucking with him at this point. Oh, sure. Totally. Donnie is. Yeah. And there's this long pause, just like in the Goodfellas scene where it's like, wait, are you serious about this? And then, oh, no, you're fucking with me. Um, but then he wasn't that fuck because then he just says we would take it to like an institution or somewhere that's handled to like, you know, raise the kid or whatever. And then he, he says he has a little present for him. And they cut to a high angle. They're in like this really tight space. I'm not entirely sure where they are at this moment. Yeah. If it's still at the restaurant. And, and I, I couldn't remember what this was about. I was like, what is the present? Are they going to see a prostitute? Are they going to, like, what is, what is happening here? Smoke crack with me, bro. Smoke crack. Smoke some fucking crack with me, bro. <laughs> Jordan goes, <sighs> Yes. See, now these scenes are great scenes that are between two guys, and these are universal relatable scenes, right? Because it's someone who's got something, and they he wants to sneak off and do it with a friend, and it's a friend he trusts. Because you got to do drugs with people you trust, for God's sakes. You should. Yes, you should. Well, yes, fair. You should. Um, and so he's having this moment with him. Now, this isn't about them stealing money from anybody. This isn't about them hurting anybody uh, with their tactics. So this scene is a fun scene between two actors and two characters here. And the performances here are fantastic in this sequence. Because you can tell Jordan, just like he resisted the drink from Mark, he does not want to open the door to a harder drug here with crack. But Donnie is relentless and must have his needs satisfied. Jordan gives in, and oh, man, is that sequence hilarious. Well, I think, I don't know what you think, but mm. my feeling is throughout, first of all, the show me the $70,000 check, mm. and then the whole conversation about the cousin and all that, I think there is a part of Jordan who is going, do I really want to be involved with this guy? Like, like, Oh, yeah. And, and so, and I think in the scene before he does crack. Yeah. He's almost ready to leave, it feels like to me. Oh, yeah, maybe, yeah. And then, and then, but then he gets offered crack. <laughs> we know George Belfort likes his drugs. And 
I don't know if Leonardo DiCaprio has ever smoked crack, but his performance oh. in the moment that he does it and just and then it's full love for Donnie. Then they're like bonded brothers from that point forward. Wow. <laughs> Let's go on. We gotta get out of here, buddy. We gotta get out of here. Let's go fucking run. Let's run like we're fucking lions and tigers and bears. Let's run. Let's fucking run. The running out is great. The running is hilarious. Randomly. So yeah. And then what we find out is they're going to set up their own business and that they, they, they're they setting up in an auto body shop and they needed to get some more brokers. So he starts recruiting the boys. Yeah. And we're in a restaurant and we get these descriptions of Sea Otter, who sold meat and weed, <laughs> Chester, who sold tires and weed, and Robbie, who sold anything he could get his hands on, mostly weed. <laughs> it's a funny movie. Mm. And then we get Brad, which is Joe Bernthal. Yeah. Who at this point, I didn't know who he was, you know, mm. I don't think. Right, right. And he's such a good actor. Yeah. You kind of have a cut to him lifting weights and selling drugs and, you know. Right. Again, a lot of this, the stuff with the Amish and the Buddhist, this is, all comes out of improv. What, you know, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, I'm like Buddhists. They don't give a shit about money. They're wrapped in sheets. They're not buying well, shit. I'm not, yeah, I'm not talking about Buddhists or Amish. I'm, I'm talking about normal people, working class, everyday people. Everyone wants to get rich. Am I crazy? There's no such thing as Amish, Buddhist. I'm pretty fucking sure. No, I didn't. <laughs> and then we have all these conversations of, of sales and how to sell things and who can you sell to. And they're all bragging and talking about it. And finally, Jordan Belfort pulls out his pen. Sell, sell me this fucking pen right here. You can sell anything, sell that. Go ahead. Sell me that pen. Can I finish eating first? I need to. And he hands it to John Bernthal and goes, okay, sell me this pen. Fuck pen. That's my boy right there. This pen. Fucking right. sell anything. Why don't you do me a favor? Why don't you name down that napkin for me? I don't have a pen. Exactly. Supply and demand, my friend. <laughs> this is quite a collection of people he has at the table here, Steve. Totally. And look, look. not only is it a collection of characters, you've also got an interesting collection of character actors, right? And each yeah. one wanting to stand out in a different way. And I've seen all, almost all of them in other stuff, including, of course, John Bernthal. But I love how they're all distinctly different, kind of similar, um, and yet you can tell the hierarchy amongst who is in charge of what and most of the times and this is what it's going to become is essentially the cult of jordan belfort most of the times the reason cults exist the reason mini cults pop up or cult-like behavior pops up is because people do surrender their thought processes their what's right or what's wrong to someone who seems to convey success power and intelligence uh or and strength obviously um, and so we're seeing that Brad is the only one who's not like caught up with Jordan. Brad's looking around. He's fucking with the waitress. He's frustrated that he's not getting uh, the ketchup or whatever. So he's distracted by this other stuff, obviously, because he's on drugs or whatever. But like the, he's distinctly he doesn't feel like he's in the, the with the right people. Like he's not he shouldn't be with these people. He sees himself as something else. Jordan knows that he can uh, he needs these people to be able to create what he wants to create in the long run. And so he plays with it and plays with and massages their egos and uplifts them and gets them to do these things. And that's why they follow him. Whereas Brad could do that, but he doesn't have that instinct to lead necessarily 
He just has an instinct to be seen as this badass and separate from everybody else. Well, frankly, I think Brad is not as insecure as all these other guys. He, exactly. That's the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and so, and I'm going to say something that's, this is going to sound, maybe this will sound just completely crazy <laughs> but, but to our audience. Although I have a feeling that you might actually agree with me on this. Probably. Because when yeah. you said Colt, the first pace my brain went to mm-hmm. was the Manson family. Oh, and yeah. What does Charles Manson do? He brings in these people. Does he bring in the strongest willed people or the oh. most intelligent people? No, he brings in people with some insecurities. And then what does he do? He plies them with constant drug use and sex yeah. while continually spouting some philosophy, some understanding of the world. Yeah. And that is how you build a fucking cult. Well, here's the hidden truth. And people, I'm going to go even farther than you and probably get, and people get, will probably be even more upset at me, which is, of course, nothing new to me. But <laughs> we, the, uh, to me, we call these things cults, but the cult mentality is everywhere. And I've become, as I've watched more and more of these documentaries uh, during the during COVID lockdown and then now, I'm so aware of cult-like behavior occurring everywhere, in sports, in business, in like the standard stuff with the Manson stuff that you normally see here, this idea that people who are insecure, who don't feel strong, who don't, who have a lot of issues going on with themselves, surrender this power to someone who they think is going to lead them to the light or a better existence or a better world. You know, watching that Nexium cult, a lot of intelligent people were involved in the Nexium cult, accomplished people involved yeah. in the Nexium cult. And they surrendered themselves to Rhaenyra and this thing. So it's just fascinating to watch this as it occurs. And I think we have to expand our perception and definition and mentality surrounding cults and realize our entire country is a cult. Our entire country is driven by cult-like behavior because majority of people in this country, in the world really, are insecure people or caught up in uh, things that make them feel bad about themselves. So they seek strength in other things. To find power, the self help stuff, Andrew Robbins, all or Anthony or Andrew, whatever, whatever it is, Anthony, uh, Anthony, Anthony Robbins, Robbins, all that stuff, Tony Robbins, right? All that stuff is driven by the cult like mentality, right? And so, when we're watching this stuff, you have to be aware, like, where am I a follower to a cult leader? What aspect of my life am I a follower to a cult leader? And have I really explored this before I surrendered my free will to someone like this? So it's it's fascinating to watch it in this movie. I think you make a great point. And I, I want to point out, it's occurred to me there are kind of three good red flags to keep an eye out for. Mm. The first red flag is the charismatic re- leader who says, I have all the answers. Because nobody <laughs> yeah. does. Nobody. And the second red flag is that those answers are simple. Like, like it's, it's oh, easy. Yeah. Like, I, I know the secret. There's some simple truth. And once you know this thing, right. whatever investing strategy or how to get girls or how to, you know, whatever it is, and they go, it's simple. You know, that's bullshit because all the, none of the hard stuff is simple. Like yeah. that's, yeah. that's the next thing. And the third thing is casting in groups and out groups and good people and bad people. Those, right. I think you get those three things together and you got to be real, real careful about what's happening and what you're following. Yeah, and I can add a fourth and a fifth one. If they want to sleep with uh, underage girls, that's a fourth red flag. And the fifth red flag is if they want you to surrender all your possessions to yeah. them and all your money and all your sign over, your inheritance, all that kind of stuff. That's a cult. You're in a cult. Yeah. 
So, and and I think that is a perfectly valid description of what we're going to be seeing oh, yeah. built in this movie. Yeah. Um, and now we're going to go to the first steps, which is we're in the garage and we see these guys selling. And again, you go to the Martin Scorsese filmmaking. He's always, he's always filmmaking. I know that sounds like a mm-hmm. stupid thing to say, but he's always going like, what's an interesting way that we can show this. And now we introduce each of these guys who we've kind of met, but in these singles, where we just look at them for a moment and hear this moment of description, like... Robbie Feinberg, the pinhead, took five years to finish high school. Alden Kupferberg, the sea otter, didn't even graduate. Chester Ming, the depraved Chinaman, thought jujitsu was in Israel. Can you imagine investing your money with these guys? Yeah, right? No. Not visually. No. And what he says is kind of what we've been talking about. Still, give them to me young, hungry, and stupid, and in no time... I'll make them rich. Young, hungry, and stupid. He knows. See, that's the thing. Jordan knew what he was doing and and knew what he was creating and knew who to prey upon. And great cult leaders, and listen, whatever form they come in, they are aware of what they're doing. No matter what they tell you or how they try to protest that they don't, they know exactly what they're doing. They may not want to face it, but they know who they're preying on. If they're taking advantage of you, making you work for a lot of hours without paying you a lot of money, claiming that you're helping bring this vision about or you're going to save a lot of people that's a cult you know, no matter what form it occurs in or area it occurs in that is a cult yeah yep um before we move on i want to say something about the book i was trying to figure out where to bring it up but it seems like this is a good place which is the book starts because i was really wondering how is this guy going to tell this story yeah, yeah you yeah. know and the book starts with a incredibly well written i think very sincere act of contrition saying, Mm. look, I was a terrible person. I really deeply regret all of these things that I did. I regret it for my family. I regret, and I was, and I'm listening to it. And I went, this feels sincere. Like it feels (laughs) like a genuinely sincere thing. And then he says, and that doesn't mean I think he is sincere, but I I think that he has written it. And I go, okay, well, maybe he's gonna, he is gonna be somewhat critical of himself. And then he writes, But the way I'm going to write this book is from the perspective of how I felt at the time, essentially. (laughs) And then and it's funny, like I a you know, you and I have swapped stories of ridiculous things we did in our past that maybe we're not. so, And they're funny stories, you know, you know, I've told stories about when I was, you know, on something or other and had an experience and. Those are hilarious stories. And I also know having listened to the Quaalude scene, we'll get to the Quaalude. (laughs) (laughs) Having listened to, you know, people who are alcoholics or drug addicts or, you know, I've listened for years to Mark Barron's show and he has these conversations and frequently part of the conversation is laughing at the insanity of the thing. And it's fun. And they're not glorifying there. You know, there's like, yes, I remember this time where I was doing whatever I was doing and this crazy thing happened. And, oh, I got my, I got my stories even better. And you tell that story. And that's part of it. I totally get that when it's a whole book. And in this case, it was, you know, I measure things by time. It's like a 25 hour long book mm-hmm. and it's entirely in that perspective. Yeah, there is. So, and he is so, because he gives himself permission by saying, Oh, I'm going to describe this as how I felt at the time. Right. It is so arrogant the way that Jordan Belfort present. It's it's like there isn't even though there's this nicely written introduction about his regrets about all this. None of the book is that. The book is isn't this awesome? Aren't I awesome? I am a genius. I am the smartest person in the room. All these guys are schmucks, and I was the only one who knows what's going on. It is self-aggrandizing from beginning to end. 
Yeah, and here's the number one truth about cults. And no matter whether they be in the Manson stuff or business or political, which certainly we've had experiences with recently, um, the people at the top of a cult pyramid do not actually want to hang out with the people in the lower part of the pyramid. They don't want to actually, they don't see themselves as the same level as these people. They see themselves above these people. So it's no surprise that Jordan speaks about them so condescendingly because that's how he felt. And that's how he legitimately still feels. I don't buy anything that comes out of that dude's mouth, whether it's recorded or written down uh, in terms of the analysis of himself. And he's like repentant or whatever. So to me, that's the thing at the end of the day. And I wish more people realized that if you're in a cult, just know the occult leader hates you, absolutely hates you, you know, and um, but wants to use you so he can he or she can stroke their own ego about their place in the world. And usually most cult leaders are failed people like they failed at everything else they tried to do. So they find this one thing they're able to uh, manipulate people to believe in them. And then, boom, they get that stroke that they've always just been looking for, which is validation of their self-belief that they're somehow unique and special and different. And uh, they use that all the way until the end. And most of the times, 99% of the times, right? I don't have the actual numbers. It always leads to some sort of debauchery and abuse, sexual, mental, emotional, or otherwise, uh, to these people who followed them in the cult. And it's, it's sad. It's fucking sad. Well, and part of it is that whether from the beginning or maybe somewhere along the way, they believe their own bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they think I am better and smarter and superior and have all the answers. Therefore, right. I deserve whatever craziness that I'm going to take. If all these people love me, I must be right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so and now we cut to he's giving a beautiful diamond bracelet to his wife and she is concerned. What is it? Go ahead. I don't know. It's, you know. These stocks, that these companies, they're, they're like crappy companies. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're terrible. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I told you what I'm doing is completely legal. Yeah, no, but that's, they're like not going to make anyone money though, right? When you have to tell your spouse, "Don't worry, I told you it's completely legal." There's a problem in this thing. Yeah, but wouldn't you feel better if you sold that stuff to rich people who can like afford to lose all that money? And this is the crux of where we're going to go. And again, like I was saying earlier, this is what is important. When she's telling him all this stuff, the movie is not glorifying him. The movie is showing this woman who loves him, his wife, telling him, this shit's illegal. I know it's illegal. Don't you think you'd be better off? Don't you think it's better in the world to not take money off these hardworking, blue-collar, everyday people, to not grift them for money? I don't know if this sounds familiar. Don't you think this is not a good thing to grift money from these hardworking people for something you know is a lie rather than actually telling the truth to these people. And I think that's where the, the, the movie shows you. There are people who are actually on the right side of this. Jordan ignored them. Jordan did not give them credit. And we as an audience, you have to decide for yourself in that moment, do you like Teresa calling him out or do you go with Jordan dismissing her, fooling her? And do you like that? And if you like that, again, the problem is you, not the movie. Um, I will say I totally agree, but I also think that in terms of the time of this film, it's like Teresa and Kyle Chandler's character, mm. they're on screen. This is a three-hour movie. Of yeah. which they have those moments for like four minutes, six minutes. Where well, we're having- yeah, and you're right, Steve, because that's my big complaint about the movie is that – and this really – if you look at a lot of Scorsese films – 
the female characters aren't as developed as the male characters. And it is a problem sometimes across some of his movies. And I think in this movie, definitely it's an issue, both for uh, Christina Milioti and for Margot Robbie, even though she's a standout Margot from this movie. There's not, we don't spend hardly any time with them, getting to know them, getting to see them, hanging out with them, their points of views of this whole situation. It's always through his prism. And I get it. It's a memoir, autobiography, whatever. But you know, you can take license and create scenes where we could have gotten more with Teresa. Uh, because Miliati, like you said, three minutes tops in the movie. Yeah. Um, but this gives him the big idea. Uh, and he, we go back to the office, and he is going to try to... F- to transform the company into a company that rich people are going to buy stuff from. Um, This next sequence, as he introduces them to Stratton Oakmont and bullshits essentially about, you know, it's uh, connections to the beginnings of wall street, which I think he like bought the name from, there was a Stratton company and created this new car. So there, there were, there was actually some lineage. It's still bullshit, but there's some lineage. And again, you could see, you know, I think I said, as we were talking before about how they built things out of improv Mm -hmm. and that because it's improv, that leads it to kind of go on a little longer. And this is a good example. And with this script, which is now your new harpoon, I'm going to teach each and every one of you to be Captain fucking Ahab. Get it? Huh? Captain who? Captain Ahab from the fucking... Book, the book, motherfucker, from the book. Turn your oh, fucking brain on. That is what they develop out of improv. And it's so fucking funny it's and so fun. Funny. Turn your brain on. When he says turn <laughs> your brain on, I kind of lost it watching it this time around. Um, <laughs> and then we go into this sequence. And I, uh, he, he, he's what we're going to have is a training sequence. Yes. And I think that explaining things to an audience is one of Martin Scorsese's great geniuses. You're so right, Steve. A hundred percent from numerous films, just the ability to explain it in a way that makes it interesting and um, makes you invest in what this whole thing is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, whether it's Goodfellas or Casino or whatever, I mean, anyway, I've said it many times. Exposition is the death of cinema. When I, when you have to just tell the audience a bunch of information that they need to know Mm -hmm. that every, good writers and good directors and everyone is working super hard to not make it boring. And not only does Martin Scorsese avoid making it boring, he makes it fucking thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and I want to just point out what is, what actually happens linearly in this sequence, which is that Jordan Belfort gives a long speech explaining the whole plan. Yeah. He has a script. He goes over the script that he wants all of them to learn then he demonstrates him using the script so they can watch and do it. Then yeah. each one of the individual people practice the script multiple times so that they can get good at it. And then they're making lots of money. Yeah. That, that's what happens linearly. But that is not what happens in this movie. Right. This movie goes all over the place. Yes, it starts with him giving the script. And by the way, I got to give both to Terrence Winter and, of course, to the great Thelma Schoonmacher. Mm who edited this because this is a work of fucking genius because what you don't feel as you're watching it and it's bopping all over the place in time with different characters, you are brought forward perfectly as one, as if it is linear, which it's not. What we're gonna do is this. First we pitch him Disney, AT&T, IBM, blue chip stocks exclusively. Companies these people know. Once we've suckered them in, we unload the dog shit the pink sheets, the penny stocks, where we make the money. And they're like, okay. And now we're watching him demonstrate it. And he's talking on the phone to someone 
about the situation they're trying to get in. Now, the key to making money in a situation like this is to position yourself now before the settlement. Because by the time you read about it in the Wall Street Journal, it's already too late. And then we go back into the lecture. And you wait. You wait. And whoever speaks first loses. Have you been in this situation where you're making a deal with someone and you're like, don't speak first? Yeah. Yeah. It's usually been a romantic situation, but yes, yes. <laughs> My favorite not speaking first comes from The Simpsons. And in it, Homer has been elected the head of the union to go negotiate with Mr. Burns. And as he goes into Mr. Burns' office, you hear his inner monologue going, reject the first offer, reject the first offer. And Mr. Burns says, can I offer you a drink? And he says, no deal. And he walks out. <laughs> But I've also been in a situation where you have a script and you have to read it and you have to get people on board with stuff. As I said, in my yeah. past years of being in retail or, or sales, um, I even did telemarketing for about a week before I quit that job here in L.A. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's in it's a, a interesting situation. And only the people who buy in are ever going to find any level of success um in this but these guys wanted to know right and he's giving them actual information this isn't like let me sell you a phone here are the things you say this is like selling the stocks so there's a sense of accomplishment and a challenge for these guys to do it and the way it's presented as you said the way it's edited it's made to feel like this is a way of these guys to find some level of um self-belief or self-worth in the situation uh and that's the drug that he's essentially selling to them well, and it's funny. What I think, uh, I think he is selling the stocks, but what he's really selling is himself. Yes. And and it goes into the, I remember, you know, we talked about before in, I'm so fascinated by con artists and mm. uh, in House of Games, the Joe Mantegna is in it in the uh, David Mamet movie. Yeah. And we hear that the whole point is a confidence game, not because you give me my confidence, but I give you yours. Right. It's, it's, I show that I trust you. Um, and I think to some degree, some of the same stuff's going on here. The only real objection that they have is that they don't trust you guys. And why should they trust you? I mean, look at you. You're a bunch of fucking sleazy salesmen, right? <laughs> and, and the thing that's happening in this scene as we're doing the phone calls, and we go from him doing the phone call with the client mm -hmm. to we go, now jump forward to all of the guys practicing, although it all feels like one seamless script. But the one thing that is perfectly clear is they are undermining everything they're saying about you can trust me to the person on the phone yeah. with their actions and gestures that we see to the other people. Oh yeah. You sound like a you sound like a pretty sincere guy. And everyone listening on speakerphone is in hysterics about this. You finally found a broker on Wall Street that you can trust and who can consistently make you money. Sound fair enough? No, yeah. You're I guess I'm pretty impressed. I just want to point out, yeah. rich people are as uh, you, you know, like there are no, there are plenty of morons among rich people sure. because he said nothing that should impress you. Because most, well, I don't know if that's true, but most rich people inherit their wealth. I think so. Yeah. I, I don't have the statistics, but I would say probably a lot. Yeah. Well, and they had, you know, they're gonna probably have the benefit of higher education, and they're gonna yes. have the benefit of of being around a lot of stuff that, you know, like someone who is, you know, parents drove a cab or something and they, you know, they're barely getting by. They probably weren't around a big, a lot of big stock deals, you know? Yeah. So I, mean, they, I think percentage wise, Steve, there are just as many people motivated to be successful out of poverty as there is out of people. Of course. Rich. 
Yeah. I think it's equal because plenty of people are born into money and are like, I have money. What the fuck do I care? Just live the life and don't try to accomplish anything. Plenty of people are born in poverty and say, there's no point because the system is rigged and I'll never make it. What's the point? And so there are, uh, we're human beings. So whatever we're born into, we have a, if you're, if you have a propensity to give up or have a emotional makeup constitution to give up, you're going to give up and not do much, whether you're rich or poor. And so it's just that that's something I'm discovering as I get older and look at the numbers and see how people react to things, you know? So people are, people are born motivated. Something happens to motivate people to achieve certain things, no matter what uh, they're born into circumstances was. Well, this is what I mean. Like anytime you kind of wall off a group and saying that group is like that, mm-hmm. it's like, if you look at one certain political stance that says that wants to create a narrative that poor people are lazy or don't want to work or only want to take advantage of the system, well, are there poor people who don't want to work and want to take advantage of the system? Sure, there are. And are there poor people who want to bust their ass every single day to make a better life for their kids? Oh, yeah, there are that too. And if you look at rich people, it's the same. Yes. Are there rich people who are lazy and just want to take advantage of the system and get kickbacks from the government and get their taxes lowered and all that stuff? Yes. Mm-hmm. And are there rich people who are born that are fiercely ambitious and want to bust their ass to create something great? Yes, there are those people too. Just by knowing where someone comes from does not actually tell you what kind of person they are. Yeah. And I imagine both sides have a proclivity to step on people and use people and whatever to achieve what they want to achieve because in their minds, that's the most important thing. And we're getting right to the end of the sale and the guy, you can tell he wants to do it. And maybe he's worried about his wife and what is she going to say if he makes this investment? And then finally he says, uh, my my wife might divorce me, but yeah, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also like, and this is the thing. He's also playing on men and men's desire to like feel like they rule their empire, right? And also men's desire. And this is the truth. Listen, I know, I get it. We're in a patriarchal society. Men are bad. I get it. I get it. I totally get it. And I concede it, to be honest with you. There are a lot of stupid men. I totally get it. But at the end of the day, most men are pretty fucked up by their raising and their and their insecurity and their stuff with their dads. And so no matter what they've accomplished, there's still that thing inside of them that wants to feel validated by a bunch of other dudes. And by or by a bunch of people that they see as somewhat more intelligent or more established or more accomplished. And so in this moment, that's what you're seeing from this guy is a validation of this guy uh, as as a as a, uh, a, a person who can be decisive about uh, the, the money in his family. And, you know, it's the tragedy is that he's just basically pissed away all the money that they've saved, most likely, uh, yeah. and will be in a worse situation. And will feel even worse about himself, you know? Well, and I think the way this is framed is it is very much framed as a testosterone move. Yes. And what what I mean by that is like, it's like driving your Ferrari fast or doing drugs or or having the affair or sleeping with a prostitute or whatever it is. It's sort of, you have the peer pressure with the dudes of, come on, man, you're going to do it. Are you going to do it? It's like, oh, but my wife and this and then fuck it. Let's do it. Yeah. Fuck it. Let's do it. It's not a wise strategy for investments. <laughs> Usually, no. Usually no. Fuck it, let's do it is like, are you going to put that $100 bill down on a number on the roulette wheel in Vegas? That's fuck right. it, let's do it. But it's not a wise strategy. <laughs> and 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 I love that the more willing Kevin or whatever his name is is, is to jump into this investment, the more they mock him, oh. you know, 
by all the gestures and like they're miming fucking him in the ass or whatever it is that's happening. Excellent choice, Kevin. How much you want to go for this time? Let's do five, $5,000. We try 8,000, Kevin. All right, let's do 10. 10. You want to do that? Excellent choice. Kevin, let me lock in that trade right now and get back to you in a few minutes with an exact confirmation, Kevin. And welcome to Stratton Oakmont. Thanks, man. I'm going to have a beer. And while he's very respectful on the phone, they are just flipping him off and laughing at him behind his back. Right, because they need people to make fun of, because I imagine they've been made fun of their entire lives. So let's find a new batch of people to make fun of so I can feel better about myself. So um, repeating the trauma, repeating the the situation uh, in a different way. Yeah. And the last thing they say about Kevin is, yo, what a fucking idiot. It's why one of the things that came up in sort of the behind the scenes and stuff is that Martin Scorsese has made a lot of films that deal with things like trust and loyalty. Oh yeah. You know, whether it's Goodfellas or the departed mm-hmm. or loyalty between, you know, Joe Pesci and De Niro and raging bull or yeah. And, and so, and this is one too. And last temptation of the Christ, right. With Judas and Jesus. Yeah. And all that. Yeah. It's great points too. Yeah. And, and one of the questions of this movie, this movie becomes about trust and loyalty, particularly as we get towards the end. Mm-hmm. And like, for me watching this scene, you have already violated all, all ideas of trust or loyalty from the way you're treating the client for mm. me personally. But then I also go, obviously Jordan Belfort wants loyalty from these guys working for them. Yes. Do you at any moment in this movie feel that he feels loyalty to them? No. And so by the end, when they tell you that he turned on everybody in order to get a lesser uh, sentence, it's not surprising to me at all. They're, he's only as loyal to them as 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 the um, the amount of money they can make him, basically. Yep. And now, of course, they're all making lots of sales, so they move into a bigger office and then to a bigger office, and we have this montage of just the craziness of them selling and making tons of money. And then uh, we get to a big celebration now in a huge office, and Jordan is up at the mic, which is a place we're going to see him a lot. Everybody have a good week. 28.7 million in gross commissions, all from pink sheet stock, boys! And to celebrate with our weekly act of debauchery, I have offered our lovely sales assistant, Danielle Harrison, here $10,000 to shave a fucking head! How do you feel? The head shaving thing is so weird and painful, and I, how do you feel watching this? And apparently, it really happened. So oh, yeah. yeah, so like this actually happening. Look, uh, I will say that I have been in rooms where people have done really crazy shit in exchange for money, or uh, there were offers of really crazy shit made in exchange for someone making a lot of money. Um, so yeah, it, this is. The, but like in this situation, what you've got now, like you, it, like we said earlier is a cult mentality, but it's really a fraternity mentality. Yeah. These guys, they see women as objects. They see what, why would you do this to one of your assistants who's helping you uh, create this uh, level of wealth? Why would you go, oh, if we make 10,000, you get to shave your head. And this is what I mean. A cult leader, as more and more people become followers of a cult leader, less and less lines are visible for a cult leader. He can he or she can get away with anything that comes into their warped little head. And so the idea, and I'm sure this was Jordan's idea, of like, let's shave 
the head of one of the girls, right? One of the assistants. Let's do that. Now, Scorsese doesn't show him making this idea or coming up with this idea because you still have to somewhat identify with the protagonist. You can make him too evil where it no longer becomes tenable for us to watch this guy and be fascinated by the things that happen around this guy. So if he was the one that was coming up with this stuff, he would start sliding more towards into the evil side of things, and that would affect affect the audience. So you have it just be something that he's talking about, and we don't know who did it and who came up with it. It could imply, it could imply that she came up with it. We don't know. But when he, they're doing it, it is horrific to witness. It is hard to witness. And again, this is not a glorification of Jordan Belfort. This should make you sick to your stomach that you're watching this young woman having her head shaved by a dude who's not a barber, by the way, one of the idiots who are with Belfort. And, and when she, he finished it, he does a terrible job. There's still strands of her hair, but she's got her money and she's holding it. And he's talking about she's going to use it for getting double Ds, you know? So something, once again, that objectifies her doesn't elevate her. And I think that's the fascinating thing to watch in this movie, how women are treated. Um, And it's on purpose because he is clearly a sexist. He is clearly a misogynist. And these little moments show that to you. Because Jordan could have been the one to say, no, we're not doing that. She's not shaving her head. That's ridiculous. Uh, we'll find out if she wants to get breast surgery, I'll pay for it. It's no big deal as a thank you. But no, it has to be a spectacle. And that's where I think the misogyny really comes in. It, it, it is a really hard, weird scene to watch. And, and, I, and I couldn't find it officially, but I'm fairly certain that this actress actually is having her head shaven in this oh, scene. Yeah. It, it, it is not. And so the emotion that 10,000 Steve, by the way, (laughs) probably. And the emotion on her face, because there's this weird moment where she's kind of smiling at the beginning. And then there's even like a smiling, crying, like, and I think that actor is because having your head shaved and she does have beautiful hair. Like that's a big fucking deal. And, and so she's having an experience. And then, and I also go, you know, to, to what you're saying is like the defense from the Jordan Belfort, uh, perspective, I would think is, look, everyone had consent. She didn't have to do this. It was offered and she accepted it. And what's so troubling about it, and this is why these ideas of consent, we have to get better at understanding is like, she's in a high pressure situation and this is her boss. And it is a lot of money yeah. and she could use the money, although she's being pressured into the D cups as well. And yeah. it's like that. And yet they put her, she is, not, you know, it's like you can also say that the little people being thrown at the target, well, they agreed to the job and they got paid. Right. They got paid. But that doesn't mean that it, this is a healthy situation. This is a horrible situation. And the fact that we have like, you know, half naked marching band going through the room in this total chaos with Jordan Belfort screaming. Is this a great fucking company or what? Is this the greatest company in the world? I mean, it's a cult. <laughs> Let's <laughs> yeah, go back to what you're saying. I mean, and they're gymnasts and they've got batons and the strippers come in and then the mu- music gets really dissonant. And with this uh, howling wolf smokestack lightning starting to play and it does such a, th- and, and this is again, to your point from before, all of this is undermining that any of this is fun or moral or okay. It is all saying this is, this is some twisted shit that's going on. hundred percent, hundred percent. 
And I think um, John Twisted Shit seems to be the right moment to end part one of our exploration of the Wolf of Wall Street. It seems strangely appropriate. Um, as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts about whatever cults you've been a part of. You can reach <laughs> us uh, by searching for the Cinephiles on Facebook, Cine underscore Files on Twitter, now X, I guess. I don't, I'm never going to be able to call it X. It yeah. just seems it's so stupid. But anyway, right. uh, Cinephiles Podcast on Instagram. And of course, you could subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, on Spotify, Google Play, all those places. If you're on Apple Podcasts and have a moment to leave a review, we would greatly appreciate it. If you leave a fantastic review and even plug your own thing, maybe we'll le- read that review on the next episode of The Cinephiles. Who knows? Uh, and if you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how would they reach you yeah you can always uh, find me at the rogue says on twitter instagram and tiktok the outlaw nation on twitch my other podcasts uh the hot mic and the geek buddies they're out there for you all to enjoy and um you know the patreon guys uh, thank you so much to everyone who's been involved in our patreon and who's been uh, jumping up and uh, going to different levels and i hope you've enjoyed we hope you've been enjoying the perks uh and uh, we've really enjoyed the advisory board meetings that uh, have been happening around this and it's just a lot of fun i really feel like the cinephiles has really kind of gone to Another great level, um, uh, Steve, uh, where we've really had fun with our listeners and our, our and our viewers, and had just great interactions here. And it feels like we're all on the same page, moving that forward. And uh, we couldn't thank you enough because we are not cult leaders. We are very interactive and appreciative of all of you helping us uh, create the cinephiles and and uh, move it forward. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Steve Morris, aspiring cult leader. <laughs> um, so I think that is it for this week. We will see you next time for our continuation of The Wolf of Wall Street right here on The Cinephiles. Cinephiles.